Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 159 for September 6th, 2009. Every time I get a new copy of a piece of software from Zara, I tend to be amazed. The latest application I've been looking at is Zara Extreme Pro. And I subtitled this when too much is just enough. This seems to be just the standard operating procedure for Zara. The company has now brought yet another high-end graphics feature to a modestly priced product. Content-aware scaling. It's a feature that's available from Zara Extreme, a $90 application that handles both photographs and vector art. You don't find too often the terms $90, photographs, vector art, and content-aware scaling in the same sentence. Zara Extreme's content-aware scaling falls a little short of what can be done in Adobe Photoshop. But consider that Adobe Photoshop sells for $700, more than seven times the price of Zara Extreme. The Adobe application can, of course, do a lot of things that the Zara program can't. But then again, Zara Extreme can do a few things that Photoshop can't. Content-aware scaling is important because it eliminates a common problem. Because content-aware scaling can be such a useful feature, I'd like to take a look at what can be done. And again, with any time we do anything with graphics, you really have to check out the website to see what I'm talking about. Because I can hold up my hands and wave them around, but that doesn't work very well in an audio-only format. What happens, typically, is when an amateur designer has a wide photograph that needs to be square, or a tall photograph that needs to be square, or even worse, a tall photograph that needs to be horizontal, bad things start to happen. Not knowing any better, the amateur designer simply squishes the image or stretches it. The result is unattractive. And as I said, it's even worse if the designer has a portrait image or a square image that needs to be a landscape image that's wider than it is tall. People who weigh 120 pounds soaking wet suddenly appear to weigh 530 pounds. I've seen this on publications by exercise centers, and the people on the cover were probably just thrilled to be depicted as twice as wide as they really are. So for my testing, I started with a photo of a bicycle race in Worthington. The image was landscape. Again, that's wider than it is tall. So let's say I want a square image. Well, it's easy just to squish it. Bad choice. Using Zara's content-aware scaling, I first have to tell the application to prepare the image for either vertical or horizontal manipulation. Once that's done, I can squish away. Now, the image I have is a relatively extreme example, but Zara managed to identify the bicyclists as important and changed them only slightly when I modified the picture. I did notice a garage in the background, and the people standing there appear to be uncommonly thin. And, oh, over at the right edge of the picture, there was a guy standing there talking on a two-way radio. The squishing pretty much destroyed him. Content-aware scaling also offers the ability to mask the image. When you mask part of the image, you tell Zara not to modify that part of the image. 
So I masked the bicycle riders, I masked the garage in the background, and I masked the communications guy over on the right-hand side of the image. And then when I modified the size of the image, the cyclists remained untouched. The garage remained untouched, but, of course, so did everything in that vertical band. And the communications guy remained intact. However, because something had to get squished somewhere, some vehicles and some people on the left edge are a bit crushed. So I thought maybe the best solution for this particular image would be to use content-aware scaling to achieve part of the needed change, and then to crop the image to finish the job. Alternatively, I could allow the people in the far background, the one standing in the garage, to simply be compressed. They're far enough in the background and a bit out of focus. Nobody would likely notice. So that's what I did. I concentrated the content-aware scaling just on the cyclists and on the communications guy. Resizing the image and a little bit of cropping completed the process. So that's probably the biggest new feature in the box, but Zara is about more than just what's in the box. Traditionally, Zara provides one feature that few other software providers can match. The Help menu in Zara Extreme links to the Zara website. That's because the company has provided online training unlike that from just about anybody else. In addition to the videos that show you how to use a particular application or function within the application, Zara includes projects created by designer Gary Priester and others. These help people learn how to use the programs, of course, but they also help non-designers understand some design concepts. Short how-to movies, training exercises, and discussions are all available in the Zara Zone. While looking through some of the videos, I watched a demonstration of how Zara Extreme can create flash animations. That's right, flash animations from a $90 application. Zara Extreme is not Adobe Flash. There is no question there. Adobe's application can do far more than Zara can. But Zara does everything that most people who are not professional illustrators and animators need to do. And it does it in a way that's easy to understand. Instead of a timeline, Zara simply uses keyframes and duration settings. A keyframe is a particular point in an animation where something important changes. So you create two keyframes and set the duration of the first to five seconds. Zara will then create an animation that starts with the image in the first frame and create all of the intermediate frames needed to get from the first frame to the second frame five seconds later. You can make an object grow, shrink, move, or change color, or some combination of those, all without ever having to touch a timeline. I decided to create a little animation that said TechBiter Worldwide. I wanted it to start with the text relatively small and black. And by the end, I wanted the text to be larger, red, and in the lower right-hand corner. So I created a 400 by 100 pixel frame that I wanted to use for the animation. Then I created the small black text in the upper left corner of the stage. It is important with Zara to name anything you want to animate. Then I duplicated the first frame, enlarged the text, and changed the color to red. Zara itself will take care of creating all the intermediate frames. The default is for the animation to take half a second and the second frame to display for half a second. I, of course, changed that because half a second is entirely too fast for what I wanted to do. The animation occurs in one second, 
and then the frame with the larger red text displays for two seconds. Then it repeats. All that was left for me to do at that point was to export the Flash movie and embed it in HTML. Total elapsed time to make this little piece of Flash animation? Eh, about two minutes. Zara Extreme comes in two versions, Zara Extreme and Zara Extreme Pro. The version I've been talking about, the $90 version, is Zara Extreme. The list of differences between the regular version and the professional version is surprisingly short, but it illustrates why one of them has the professional badge and the other does not. The additional features included in the Pro version are the ones that professional designers will need. Examples include support for Pantone colors and color separations, both needed for color print work. And to assist with output for printing, the Pro version also includes support for the PDF-X format, as well as for Microsoft's XPS export format. Although I have to wish that Microsoft's XPS format would simply go away. If there's one thing graphic artists and printers don't need, it's another page description format. Just stick with PDF and ignore XPS. Both the Pro version and the regular version can create panorama views for multiple photographs, but the Pro version offers a slightly more powerful set of options. So the bottom line for Zara or Zara Extreme, well, it lives up to its name, Five Cats. Zara's interface continues to be just a little bit quirky when compared to other graphics applications, which are quirky in their own way. But Zara packs an astounding amount of power into a small, inexpensive package. This could be the application that you would choose if you must have the fastest graphic application available, even if that means you'll pay less for it than you would for the famous name brands. For more information, check out the Zara website. You'll find a link to that website from the TechBiter Worldwide website, which is, of course, www.techbiter.com. Microsoft offers the ability to password protect documents from Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Access, and other programs. If you forget your password, don't mind spending 40 bucks and have several hours, days, or weeks to wait. Recovery is easy enough. Just use a program such as Passware's VBA Key to conduct a brute force attack. I tried out the demo version of the application recently. The demo version is limited to revealing passwords of up to three letters. And the more you know about your password that you want to crack, the faster you'll crack it. This is a useful tool, one that can help someone who has forgotten a password remember it so that you can get back to an important file. It could help a manager who finds out too late that a key employee's password-protected files contain mission-critical information. And it can help police officials who are investigating a crime. Password has several applications that are designed to remove or identify several types of passwords. As with most tools, they could be used for good purposes or bad. Because the demo application could crack passwords shorter than four characters, I created a file with a password that I would never use, my initials, WFB. After saving the file to the desktop, I visited the Passware site, downloaded the demo, and installed it on my computer. The application can recover file passwords, which is what I wanted to do. It can recover Internet and network passwords, reset the Windows administrator password, or search the entire computer for password-protected files. So I selected the first option. I opened the file with the Passware tool, but I could have just dropped the file onto the application using the mouse. 
Pretending to know nothing about the password, I watched as the application started trying various combinations of letters and numbers. Even with a three-character password, the process could take days, and the computer's CPU was consumed entirely by the process. So I halted the process. If you've forgotten the password, you might still know something about it. I returned to the setup screen and selected Other, which would let me add some additional information. I started by telling the application that my password was exactly three characters long and that it did not resemble any English word. And Finally, I told it that it began with W, consisted only of letters, and that all the letters were lowercase. That's a lot of clues. And with all that information, it found the password in less than a second. Many people have created free applications for recovering what are called file modification passwords. These are passwords that are applied so that others can open a file but not modify it. If you have a file that you can open but not modify, then you need only a free application, such as the utility from a Norwegian programmer, Einar Stahlhaus. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, as you'll find a link to Passware for their applications just in case. In short circuits, Windows 7 is here, more or less, sort of. If you're a Microsoft TechNet subscriber, I am, you might already have the RTM version of Windows 7 on one or more of your computers, and in fact, I do. Earlier this week, I installed the release to manufacturing version of Windows 7 Ultimate on my notebook computer. Because this is a holiday weekend, I cherish nothing more than spending all three days of a holiday weekend in front of my computer. I will be installing Windows 7 on the desktop system. The excitement just never ends. The RTM code is what companies such as Dell and HP receive. It's what they will be installing on machines that they're building right now for release in October. The RTM code is what Microsoft sends to companies that manufacture installation DVDs. So the operating system that's on my notebook computer now is not beta code anymore. It's not release candidate code anymore. It is the version that will ship in October. I was a bit disappointed but not particularly surprised that I would not be able to upgrade my notebook from Windows 7 Release Candidate 1 to the RTM code. RC1 was a release candidate. That's an important word. It wasn't the release code. And you'll almost always find significant differences between RC code and RTM code. And bear in mind that RC1 was only the first of two release candidates. Release candidates are considered code complete, meaning that no features will be added, but features may be modified or deleted. I remember seeing features in Windows 95's release candidate code that didn't appear in Windows until Windows 2000 or later. There's been some grumbling on TechNet about the lack of an upgrade path from the RC code to the RTM code. That's a bit surprising because TechNet is intended to be a place where people understand the difference between beta and release. If the code is a release candidate, it really is still beta code. You should never expect an upgrade path from beta to generally available code. So I knew that I would need to format the drive and start over with the laptop. The desktop computer has XP. Migrating from XP to any version of Windows 7, pre-release or release, required formatting the drive. I didn't want to do that twice on the desktop. So this weekend I'll be formatting the drive once and installing Windows 7. 
Having used Windows 7 in pre-release form for several months, I know that this version of Windows is everything that Vista was supposed to be, and a lot more. If you have a Vista computer, you have a clear upgrade path to Windows 7, and you'll want to take it, even if you have to pay for the new version. And you probably will, unless you bought a computer very recently. If you have an XP machine, it's a little muddier. You're looking at a clean install, so if you're happy with XP, you might want to just continue using it until you replace your computer. And if you have a dual-boot machine, keep in mind that once you install Windows 7, you'll probably have to fiddle around with your other operating system. The Windows installer destroyed the Linux bootloader, Grub, and rendered the Linux partition invisible. I really had expected that. I didn't have enough time to look up all the procedures for re-enabling Grub, so reinstalling Ubuntu Linux was the fastest and easiest process. Two operating systems installed on one computer in less than an hour. Hmm, not bad. If you're primarily a user of Windows, you're going to like Windows 7. The United States has already approved plans by Oracle to acquire Sun Microsystems, but the European Union hasn't yet fully weighed in on the matter, and it appears that there is some concern in Europe that allowing the takeover would be a bad thing. That's a valid concern. Sun Microsystems is responsible for MySQL, the open-source database application. Oracle is the developer of its own closed-source, expensive database application. The concern is that Oracle will acquire Sun and kill MySQL. While short of blocking the move, the European Commission has voted to continue its investigation of the deal. European Union Competition Commissioner Nelly Crows says that the acquisition of Sun by Oracle could reduce competition. The Commission has until mid-January 2010 to make a decision. The European Commission seems to be a bit more concerned about unfair competition than is the U.S. Department of Justice. Crows has said that open-source software is an important alternative to proprietary solutions and wants to make sure that such solutions will continue to be available. The open-source community insists that software and the source code must both be freely available to anyone who wants them. Companies are allowed to charge for support, which is how the applications are effectively monetized. Companies such as Oracle charge high prices for both their applications and their support. So this seems like a reasonable time to go slowly and ensure that Oracle cannot simply acquire Sun and then kill MySQL. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.